Hi everyone, this is Jeff. And this is Russ. When we first started Home on the RNG, we began it as a series of videos, and we produced quite a few before we realized it really works better as a podcast. Whoops-a-doodle. So we apologize if any of these early episodes have any visually heavy references that don't transfer to the audio medium. Whoops-a-doodle. Thanks for listening. Today we played a game that I love, a game that I have a lot of personal history with, and a game that for me, playing it is like sinking into a nice warm bath of comfort. Am I this annoying when I, <laughs> when I gush about things? Today we played Final Fantasy Tactics for the PlayStation, and it was super good. We, we played it. Spoilers, it was great. We played Final Fantasy Tactics. Did you not? <laughs> Did you not I play already it? told you. Did, you haven't told them. Did you not play this game? I played a, what I consider to be the most that I could possibly play. Okay. So, before we get into how Russ failed this review, we can start with personal history. When I was 16, I bought a PlayStation with probably my second paycheck from my job at a fast food restaurant. And I went to Walmart and I bought the PlayStation and I bought Final Fantasy VII and the Lunar remake. And the woman that was checking me out who Weirdly, at a Walmart in, like, 1998, I guess knew a lot about video games. And she was like, oh, there's also this other Final Fantasy game, Final Fantasy Tactics, that you might be interested in. And I looked at the back of the case, and I said, no, no, I don't think I'm interested in that one. But thank you. I'll just take the PlayStation, the Final Fantasy VII, and the Lunar, and I've never regretted my decision. I actually have personal history for this. Um, I did not buy my own PlayStation. I got it as a Christmas present many years after it came out. If I recall correctly, when I actually got the PlayStation, Final Fantasy VII, eight, eight had already come out. Nine might have. No, I think I bought nine. So it was after Final Fantasy VIII had come out. But I did go and buy Final Fantasy Tactics for myself. Uh, it, it was like. It got some special uh, gold collection for the PlayStation, or PlayStation's Greatest Hits, that's what it was called. Uh, and I liked Final Fantasy, and I thought, oh, I'll play this. And I loved it. I played it a lot, although weirdly, I never actually beat it until probably 
five years ago. Uh, I also have a very close friend of mine who loves Final Fantasy Tactics way more than I do. She played it so long she broke the timer. That keeps track of how many hours you've logged. She maxed it out. Um, I like Final Fantasy Tactics. I have probably mentioned it in a review or two before with Russ giving me weird looks that I love the incidental sounds. I like the soundtrack. I like the characters. I love the job system. This is one of the few games that we've done in this series where I have an investment in personal history. I've played this thing. I love this thing. And I was happy to revisit it for this. The youngest son of a noble family abandons the knighthood for life as a mercenary due to tragic events. He then finds himself embroiled in a war for secession that will leave him questioning everything he knows about his world. That's, that's Your the story. friend is sad. <laughs> Who has timed out the timer on Final Fantasy Tactics. I just feel bad for her. For us, we're here to talk about the story. And I kind and of characters. want to just like wrap her in a blanket and like pat her head and say it's all going to be okay. We're here to talk about the story and the characters. All right. And even you admitted you liked the story. I did. I do admit that. I liked the story enough. It was very... It falls in line with the other, like, Ivalice Final Fantasy games. Well, this was the original <laughs> Ivalice Final well, Fantasy game. Story was the original. Was well, it? Did, was Vagrant Story before or after? I think it was after this. Was it after? Okay, well, good, well cool. I think this established it. the setting. Okay. Well, I like the Ivalice games, is what I'm saying, in terms of the story. In Final Fan like Final Fantasy twelve is one of my favorite Final Fantasies. Um, and it's very... I've heard Final Fantasy twelve described as, like, kind of a Final Fantasy Game of Thrones. <laughs> And I think this this, this the, had this, that yeah, this was this, much more that yeah this has that in spades so I will give it that I like the story and I like the story enough that even though the gameplay was um, I did just watch YouTube videos to of the story, the story because I wanted to see how it all played out yeah so I will say thumbs up on the story yeah it it is a great story um, that setup that I gave it oftentimes when I write those descriptions they're kind of overselling what the game actually gives us and in this case it's not it is actually an epic tale it of is. betrayals and houses at war and friendships and family ties broken yeah. uh uh with some mysticism thrown in right and it's a There's solid like story you you gotta pay attention it's a deep story to, for the kingship and this and that the only thing that i didn't like is that it Japan and their little sisters. Because mm. it does all kind of come down to save the little sister, save the world. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, there's a well, lot of... Well, speaking of the little sister, Russ, what did you think of the characters? Well, I mean, they they were... The, the characters... The characters that actually played a part in the story and had names and everything were good. I liked Agrius and Orlan, Orlan, Orlando and... Um, you know, I, I liked that. What I didn't like was when you're like making your party and you're just like taking these random, like yeah, Emma, like Emily the Knight or whatever. When you start and she out has the absolutely game, absolutely nothing to do with the story. When you start out the game, the majority of your party is made up of they have names, they're, but their personality, they're blank slates. They're blank slates. They're squires or they're chemists. And then you grow them and you spend time and, with them and. 
any character they have is what you give them in your own mind. But as the story goes on, you meet NPCs, Mustadio. Yeah, and Gafgarian. Yeah, who join your party with special abilities and are part of the story. And you find yourself relying less and less on the blank templates that you've made, unless you made one really good. Uh, and, and more relying on these special NPCs who do have personality, who and do I have story. And I was relieved when that... Like, I was relieved that that is part of it. I mean, I didn't get <laughs> very far to the point I was really amassing those characters. But I know I've talked to you personally about Disgaea a lot and how I don't like Disgaea. And part of it is because you're just taking a character class and you're giving it a name. And it's not like... I mean, there are like five story characters in those games. And then you're, it's just like random... You create a sure. warrior, you create a monk, whatever, and I don't like that. And this game starts that way, but it grows as you... And I kind of like that, too, because there's a lot of story going on in this world. And if you just gave me all of these characters with backstories all at once, it would just become white noise to me. But instead, as you progress through the story, you meet characters with personalities and backstories that accumulate. So you have time to kind of get into it. Yeah. So I, I think it's really well done. I think the story and the characters, even Russ, who hates this game. Yes, I hate the gameplay in this game. This is just, it's an unpopular opinion, but I'm just not a tactical RPG person unless it has fire emblem in the title. Because then it has a dating sim attached. And, I ha and I'll explain that. When we talk about the combat system, that's going to be my contribution. Okay. But, um, but yes, the story, it is worth, like, even if you're totally not into this type of game, to just, like, go watch the story on YouTube. And the characters. Okay. Yeah. So I we both agree, that. story and characters, mm -hmm. great. Now we're going to get to the part where we disagree. <laughs> Combat system. <laughs> so if you haven't played it, let me set the stage for you a little bit. It's a tactical, turn-based RPG. I'll, I'll correct you as you make mistakes. <laughs> Think Fire Emblem. No. Shining Force. Don't. Don't hey, think Fire hey, Emblem. I'm just setting the basics here. I'm describing the basics. This might be our most entertaining episode yet. In terms of how combat works, think Fire Emblem, think Shining Force, think Hyper Devotion Noir, Goddess Blackheart, you know, the mainstays of the tactical RPG realm. Um, one of the biggest differences compared to those games, though, is that in this game, the terrain is three-dimensional. So you'll often find movement is hampered or increased, or range attacks are hampered or increased, based on the height of the terrain you're trying to travel to and from. Uh, also, a significant difference that I don't see in most other tactical RPGs is the direction that you attack an enemy from increases likelihood to hit and damage. It's better to attack an enemy from behind or from the side than attacking them from the front. Uh, which I like as a mechanic, because it makes you think more about character placement and where you, what your which way your character's facing. Uh, and I don't see a lot of games do it that way. Um, and then I have one other topic on this, but we can wait for Russ to unleash. <laughs> so, Go so ahead. Don't, so don't think of Fire Emblem. Is unless, my point. unless you're trying to picture in your head how this works, because no, because Fire Emblem, Fire em, okay, Fire Emblem is fun because they use systems like the weapon triangle, like this weapon beats this weapon beats this weapon, and like flying units are weak to arrows and armored units are weak to magic, and they use all of those sort of systems 
to keep the game to use a real strategy and keep the game moving at like a steady beat so like you have this sword user and it's like okay this person uses a sword so they need to move here and then they can like one hit kill this character and then we just keep the thing moving final fantasy tactics the reason it was so frustrating to me is especially at the very beginning all your characters are squires or chemists your chemists are there to heal and your squires are there to attack and it's literally just moving to chip away at the hp of the enemy before the enemy can chip away at your hp and that's all it is it's not using like actual strategy to say okay there's a pegasus over there so i need to send my archer over there but then he's weak so i need to send this knight with him because she's strong and protect her but then he can use the arrow to take the it's not that it's just like can i get this character to this point and then we just attack and then they attack and then they attack and you just hope that you chip their hp before they chip yours i and it was very i very, see some of your very point, frustrating but i think there is more strategy especially later on now i will give you and i will concede that as you go on and you have more classes and things like that it does get i mean i saw it get a little better and i'm sure it would improve more yeah, because there's strategies go. of, okay, I want to get my ranged person to the high ground. Yeah. I got to make sure my mages stay behind my heavy hitters. But the thing about Fire Emblem is that it gives you, like, one of all the classes in the first, like, three chapters. Or whatever. Whereas in this one, you have to earn it. You have to and train the, towards it. But you shouldn't have to. That's not the way. My, I think my point is that that's... I'm real serious about this for some reason, and I don't I've know noticed. why. But that's not the way that you get a person into a game. You don't got me into it. You don't get a person because you build into it. It's kind of you. You, for me, the first battle was welcome to the mechanics of a tactical RPG, and that's another thing. The so the first battle, I think they could have used that as a way to show off like all of the cool things you can eventually do, but they don't because they only let you control Ramza. Yeah, and then you have to just watch all your other cooler characters do all these cool things. I wasn't things. even thinking about that. I was and thinking about the first actual... And you can't do any of it. So they give you this intro where you've got like this dark knight and whatever, and he can use a soul sucker or whatever, and... But but the computer is controlling them, and all you have is Ramza, who can only move a little bit and throw a stone or whatever. So it's not a good way to introduce... And then, and then they put you in that first like real battle... And again, like I said, it's just a bunch of squires. So you've all got your little dagger and you're just like trying to advance on the enemy and chip them down before they can chip you down. I will agree that it's Final super... Fantasy Tactics is a slower build yes. than Fire Emblem where you're, you're heavy and hitting right from the get-go. has been that way since the beginning. I mean, even the old NES games that we never got have been that way since the beginning where like you start and you have like all the one of all the character classes you're going to have and then you have to start building that strategy you don't have to work into it and i don't feel like you should have to like earn the ability for the game to be fun <laughs> like, see and i disagree i think like the if game all is fun games, right from the get-go no. like if all games had to earn the right to be fun like final fantasy 13 final fantasy 13 yeah final fantasy 13 is terrible yeah Why are you arguing that 
that's where you earn the right to have fun. I don't yeah, feel like Final tactics apply. Thirteen is bad. It is. Final Fantasy Tactics. Final I Fantasy disagree. Thirteen puts you in a tutorial for ten hours. It's more than ten hours. And then, like, yeah. I, but I disagree that Final Fantasy Tactics grows right. to and be fun. And that's fine. I mean, like, I get that this is an unpopular opinion, but it's just like it was really. It all became like it all became really clear why I love Fire Emblem so much. Playing this. Because I looked at this game, and I and then I looked because I have always thought it's weird. Like I don't like any other strategy RPGs. I've noticed, and it all sort of coalesced into this. Like I totally understand what it is about Fire Emblem now that grabs me, because it is you are in it, and you're and you're doing the high level strategy, like from the beginning, almost in a Fire Emblem game. I mean by like chapter two you're really in it. And I'll say that Final Fantasy Tactics does work you into all of the mechanics of the game more slowly. But again, I like it for that because it introduces you to the game. Like it introduces you to the characters and the story slowly instead of front-loading it all at the beginning. It also does the same thing with the mechanics and the job classes and the abilities. And I'm okay with that. It's a leisurely play. This is not something you sit down and start kicking ass. Your characters yeah. start out as students at a night school. <laughs> night school. Start out <laughs> as trainee knights. Too, too many games are about your students <laughs> at a blank school now. And, and build yourself up. I mean, it, it even makes sense in the context. That your characters have right. to learn no, to get I better get, at I things. It just, it just. So this is a point Russ and I are going to fundamentally yeah. disagree on as to and whether or not the, this and is then fun. The other point Russ is, that, is going to be wrong. Is that all of the Fire Emblem char- again? All the Fire Emblem characters are—they're not just generic blank slates. Um, this is like the worst time for that to happen. Our music reviewer has arrived. Hold on, one moment. <laughs> it's fine. Come on in. Greetings. Russ was just being wrong. <laughs> Noah's being totally right. Russ was. I'm like, I was in the middle of schooling, Jeff. No, Russ was in the middle of being very wrong about what is and is not a fun game. But we're going to go ahead and move on to innovations because he's never going to come around and be right. So we're going to go ahead and move on to innovations where Russ can continue to disagree with me and continue to well, be wrong. Well, I've said my piece. No, thank God. So... So even Russ can't argue with this one. It has a really good job system, right? Yeah, because I love Final Fantasy job systems, yes. And I would argue that this is one of the best Final Fantasy job systems because actions are an experience, right? So even if you have characters who aren't necessarily combat-oriented, they can still get stronger just from supporting the party. Just a healer healing gets better and gets experience and gets job points. Job points are used to buy more abilities and as you start mixing and matching jobs you actually each character has five skill slots essentially one of the skill slots is locked into whatever job you've currently given them but the other four can be any jobs you any skills you've learned from any previous jobs so it's final fantasy five <clears throat> it's even more so though because right. final fantasy five had like two slots yes you got to mix a previous job with a current job this one it's two active, which are like, I can use black magic 
and white magic, or I can have this set of attack skills and this set of attack skills. But then there's also a movement ability that can come from any five, which is I can ignore terrain, I can find objects, I can teleport. There's a reaction ability. When somebody hits me, I counter with casting protect on myself. I counter with casting a magic spell that destroys them. I counter with shoving them off a cliff. You're very excited about I this. like this game. I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoy yourself. And then there's a passive skill, which is uh, even though I'm a white mage, I can equip axes. Or <laughs> yes, you can. The point is, there's there's really a lot to work with with the job system. This is what you sound like when you're excited about games. I want you to know. Yeah, that's true. Okay. I, yeah, okay. I'm just annoying. For once, uh, I have an opinion. Great. I'm proud of you. <laughs> so the. I we, do like Final Fantasy job system. We talked about in the Final Fantasy Legends 2 review, we talked about how if you really wanted to get into the nuts and bolts of it, there's a lot that you could play with. Or you could just play the game more at a surface right. level. This job system is very similar. There is a lot of tinkering you can do to adjust each and every character the way you want them. You can, you can really build the characters of your dreams. You can get in there. Or you could just not worry about it so much and play more on the surface level. Right. But there is a lot of depth here. There's a lot of potential here. And to really make Russ look at me weird, the incidental sounds. Oh, no, I don't look at you weird about that. I you have in the past. I understand incidental sounds. There is something about the sound effects of this game that I really like. For somebody who's pretty much immune to music, the, the sound effects of this game just get me. There's that grippy sound. When they grab a stone or they grab somebody by the shirt. You know the sound I'm talking about now? I know the sound you're talking about, yeah. I, I, I like all the little tiny sounds. Um, also, occasionally when you're casting spells or using special abilities, your characters will basically recite a poem, like they're casting the spell. Uh, which I, But they don't do it all the time, which would be irritating as all get out. It's very random. So you could go through the entire game using one skill a lot and never know what the, the spell for it is. But I like, it adds a touch to the game that I actually like. It adds a certain depth to the characters and to the, the whole game. It goes back to the fact that it's a, that it is a very well-crafted story that just <clears throat> is horrendous to play. There's also a very large cast of characters. At a certain point, you yeah. have to start kicking people out of your party. Like, you can't keep everybody. There is a limit, size limit to the party. And there's also one of my favorite things in games, unlockable hidden characters. Hmm. Including Cloud from Final Fantasy VII <laughs> is hiding in here. Because Cloud in Final Fantasy VII was everywhere. Yeah, I, I never managed to unlock him. But you can, he's in there, I swear. A uh, lot of unlockable characters, which is also one of the things I liked about Shining Force. Another mm -hmm. game you hated. Because yes, you have because, no because this game, so, so this game to me was kind of like the spiritual successor of Shining Force. It really was. Like, I feel like the Shining uh, Force gameplay was very similar to this, too. Or this was similar to Shining Force. Maybe in the gameplay, but in a lot of the mechanics, I would disagree. Like, one of the... There's, like, five you, hidden characters in this one. Right. Shining Force was all about recruiting your party right. from the world. And yes, there were hidden characters, yeah. but... And this one, to its credit, also doesn't give you plus one speed for... Oh, my God. Um, for hours of grinding experience, but... This game also has the ability to recruit, train, and breed monsters, which is something I've almost never done in I this game. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I played as much as I could, 
and then watch YouTube videos of the excellent story. But yes, you can you can recruit monsters. There are special jobs and abilities to recruit monsters, but just following the story, you're guaranteed to get a chocobo, which will give birth oh, to you more. Are, aren't you? Okay. Yeah, I gotcha. Uh, and they have their own stats and their own abilities. You can't train them like jobs, but some of them are pretty useful. Uh, there's actually like a black chocobo which can fly and cast chocobo meteor. Please stop saying chocobo. I'm not going to. Okay. You want me to do Chocobo? Chocobo. Chocobo? Chocobo. I pronounce things wrong. We've established this. Uh, and then the last thing I want to talk about in innovations is another thing that I don't get into because it's just, there's too much. But there are the zodiac symbols. Each character is born under a particular zodiac sign, which gives them strengths and weaknesses against other enemies that have different zodiac signs. Oh my god, the spreadsheet I would need to keep track of all that. Um, and then characters also have Brave and Faith scores, which I don't pay much attention to other than a high Brave score means they're better as a fighter, and a high Faith score means they're better as a magic user. And that's one of those things that if you were one of those people who created the Legends 2 spreadsheet of Monster yeah, Eats This, right. you could really get into Zodiac signs. And So basically, there's a lot here for different types of people except Russ. Is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, this is not for me. I've noticed. Uh, and since I've talked through this entire section, Russ has <laughs> basically said nothing. Well, I just let you gush, kind of like you let me when we played Skies of Arcadia. I loved Skies of Arcadia, too. I know, we were both we were yeah, really There, there was a lot of that. gushing going on there. Uh, but now Russ just wants to get out of this review, I think. so. I don't um, have anything for innovations because, I mean... You barely played the I game. I barely played the mm -hmm. game, yes. Which I'm actually grateful for, because in order to challenge Russ to play more of the game, I went ahead and made a bet with him that I was really hoping I would not have to pay off on. Yeah, I and it was if he beat the game, I would have to watch all the episodes of his favorite anime. It's not my favorite anime. If he beat the game, I would have to watch all the episodes of his favorite anime, which I believe is called Nervous Girl is Nervous. I think is the name of well, it. Well, that's accurate. Yeah. Yes. yes. So... Luckily, Russ did not beat the game, and I do not have to watch Nervous Girl is Nervous. I'm kind of grateful for that, although I did think he'd get further than... How far did you actually get? When did you actually stop playing? I fought, like, maybe five battles. <laughs> did you finish an act? It was, a chapter? No. no. Oh. <laughs> I didn't know you could raise monsters. This has gotten away from us. <clears throat> Mike! So we're back, and we actually have a musical person. Mike. Yeah, right. Talk music to me. Okay, uh, I will talk music to you. So, um, should we start with... with some general opening thoughts from uh, the experienced players on the couch? Well, I played approximately four hours of this game. Okay, yeah. <gasps> so. so some music, but maybe not all of it, right? Okay. Right. And I've played the entire game, and I can tell you there definitely is music. There's definitely music, that's right. So um, why don't we talk a little bit more about that? Um, that sounds great. That sounds like a great idea. Okay, um, so Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, 
it is fair to say that this is a BGD in video game music world. Um, this was a landmark soundtrack. What is a BGD? A big goddamn deal. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, a landmark soundtrack, not just in terms of video game composition, but um, also for the, the uh, gentleman who created it. So Final Fantasy Tactics um, was scored by uh, two guys, um, Hitoshi Sakamoto and Masaharu Iwata. And, um, Why does that Iwata name sound familiar to me? Um, maybe you're thinking of Satoru Iwata? Uh, who knows? Past president of Nintendo. Yeah, that's Tragically, probably, that's probably that what I was thinking of. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nope, I derailed you for no reason. Go on. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Um, so, um, and I also feel like I need to point out that um, because you're our audience at home watching this, um, you get to see uh, what you don't always get to see when you listen on, well, you don't get to see anything when you listen on podcasts, but um, if you listen to podcasts, folks talk, folks talk about soundtracks, and it seems amazing, like it's all extemp. Um, here's the reality, folks. Um, they're all just like me. They've got their <laughs> notes up here, so I've got a Google Doc, and you're going to see my eyes sort of dart around um, as I try to pull information nuggets out of this for you. So, Hitoshi Sakamoto, Masaharu Iwata. Um, Is that who we are now? Yes. You just uh, you're role-playing. Us? So, okay. um, just pretend I'm not here. Konnichiwa. I'm out. <laughs> I've heard Dimension Neptunia. Ganbaru. And now make music together. Itadakimasu. I'm saying all the Japanese tonight. <laughs> I said all the Japanese. Mushi. Uh, now I'm out. Okay. Um, good. So. <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, Sakamoto and Iwata are, are longtime friends. Uh, in fact, they met in high school and they had a mutual interest in games, and they began um, creating games together, actually, and then that led them to long and illustrious careers in, in game um, composition, um, including the soundtrack we're gonna talk about in just a moment, right? So um, this is uh, maybe the maturation of that partnership, uh, because by the time that they come together to do Final Fantasy Tactics, they have already collaborated together to do the music for two Ogre Battle games, March of the Black Queen and Let Us Cling Together. Um, and it's no accident um, that both of those games were written by and directed by Yasumi Matsuno, also wrote and directed Fantasy Tactics. So there's a, a deep friendship there, and Matsuo brought together his favorite game composers to do this great soundtrack for Final Fantasy Tactics. Um, they would go on to collaborate again in future, on Final Fantasy XII, which is um, perhaps Hitoshi Sakamoto's most famous um, composition. It's, I don't even think you could argue that. Um, it's its beloved, especially now that it's been re-recorded in a fully orchestral version for Final the Zodiac. Final is amazing. Yes. And, you, and, yeah, <clears throat> and you're right, because <clears throat> even though I usually don't notice music, it is amazing. So yeah, even if Final you're 12, music yeah. agnostic, yeah, that has a way of leaving up a big impression. Um, so, um, so they have this this deep collaboration, and uh, Final Final Fantasy Tactics is probably the the fullest expression of that at its time, right? So these are both um, um, old hands at the point at the time that the game comes out, 1997. That means they've been working in games for almost a decade at that point. Um, but this is um, an order of magnitude in terms of its complexity. Um, Together they turn in 71 tracks. Um, they don't collaborate on any individual track, um, but they separate the work out. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about um, Sakamoto here because um, 
not only is he so prominent in the video game music world, um, he's, um, if not a household name, he's still up there in the echelons alongside people like Sugiyama, Uematsu, um, um, Yuzoko Shiro. Um, so he's a, he's a big one. And in fact, he kind of directed the um, production of music for Final Fantasy Tactics. So he took the lead. That means not only is he composing most of the soundtrack, about 66% um, is to his credit, um, but he's also taking on the more, um, um, trying to find a way to put this so it doesn't make it seem like Matsuo's contributions don't count, because they do. <laughs> but um, Sakamoto takes on uh, maybe the, the more... The lion tune? Yeah, the memorable pieces, the pieces that are going to reinforce the themes of the story or communicate something about character. So he does the character, character portraiture, um, character themes. Um, he's doing the, the battle music. Um, the pieces that are really going to carry some emotional resonance and kind of help either communicate the story or move the story forward in the form of music, right? Um, and Matsuo um, is doing other kinds of things like the, the tonal pieces, mood music in particular, um, what we um, tend to think of as background music, because it's, it's meant to communicate a feeling rather than um, a, a hummable melody, perhaps. Um, and he's also going to do a lot of the um, the more sort of jingle-like um, themes. I feel like we saw a similar division of labor in Skies of Arcadia when you described it to us. That yeah. One person was responsible for the more epic, and the other was responsible for the milder, moodier. Yeah, and I think that's, um, um, you know, I, I don't think it's unusual to have this kind of arrangement where you have someone who has... Uh, a sense of the, the goal for the project, um, the way the project should sound. It may be that Sakamoto is working very closely with Matsuo to identify, you know, what should a player be feeling in this moment? Um, are, you, are you feeling the betrayal enough? Are you feeling whatever emotion is in that scene? And so it may be that you just have one person who's more intimately knowledgeable about whatever a given thing needs, and then from there, it just becomes a question of labor, and um, we're talking about two and a half hours of music here, which is uh, pretty incredible. Um, especially, um, I mean, this is 1997. We're really not that far out from a generation where um, soundtracks may clock in at like 20, <laughs> 22 minutes worth of music, which is about how much of it Russ heard. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Um, so uh, there's a lot of music here, and um, we can't listen to all of it. Fortunately for you, it's on YouTube. Um, no shortage of uploads for you to listen to here, but I've picked a few things that I hope will um, demonstrate um, what makes Sakamoto such a talented composer and what makes this soundtrack in particular so memorable. Um, so before we do that, um, I thought I would give you a little background sketch on Sakamoto himself. That sounds delectable. Tell me more like about this Sakamoto fellow. Nibble on. I feel like he's got some potential. Yeah, or okay. Sakamoto. Or, yeah. Really? <laughs> if you play Persona 5. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Uh, it's, oh, what happened? Sakamoto. What happened? Atlas. Okay. Um, so, uh, I think um, Hitoshi Sakamoto's um, career is worth sketching in more detail because he's... Uh, not again, not a singular figure in video, video game music, but he's um, he's kind of there at um, if not its origin, certainly the point at which it begins to get really interesting. It, it's video game music is beginning to be music. It's something more than just 
um, beeps or bloops or um, something that's meant to attract you from across the, the floor of an arcade, right? Um, so he is a self-described video game and tech geek. Um, he comes to games as a fan, and in fact, that's how he meets his co-composer, Iwata, in high school. They both discover this mutual interest in video games, and they decide, well, it's great fun to play them, of course, but um, wouldn't it be great if we make our own games? So that's exactly what they did. They got See, their... I keep telling you, we can do that. You can We have that. no skills <laughs> yeah. or abilities. Right. Made with Unity. Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's funny you mention that. Like, it's it's a so much easier today than it would have been then. It's it's kind of hard to imagine how they would have gone about this. Um, apparently there was enough of a hobbyist scene that they had um, support from some of their friends and there was enthusiasm and in fact there was even a marketplace sort of built into the hobbyist scene here. I'm getting ahead of myself. So <laughs> sorry. they get together and they create a game and they create a game for the PC-8801 called Revolter. Um, this is 1988 and um, when you're working on a hobbyist project like that and you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> um, very often you just kind of have to take the piece that makes sense to you and and work on whatever you seem to be doing well. And labor is sort of parceled out that way. Like, I'm just going to give you this thing. I'm going to hope and pray that you can make it work. <laughs> and that's how Sakamoto comes to game composition. He has no musical background, no musical training, it just turns out that he has a knack for programming music, and so he creates the score to this game, Revolter. And um, there's this, um, I mentioned this built-in marketplace, there's a, a major um, comic convention in Japan called Comiket. Um, it's the, the largest place for trading doujinshi, and uh, by 1988 it's already a phenomenon, um, 70,000 visitors or so, and so they're able to take this game out as fans only and, and sell it direct, which is kind of amazing. Um, but that is how he gets a foothold in the industry. So already he's kind of developing a sense that he wants to work in music in particular. He starts out as a programmer, decides music's really, I've got the snack for it, I really like it. Um, his programming expertise is so invaluable at this time because, of course, to, to make music for um, the Famicom or for the Game Boy, um, it's very different than it is now, right? Um, you're, you actually have to program these sounds in. You have to write to data registers in order to create a waveform, in order to produce sound. And so, um, although you did have composers like Koichi Sugiyama who are coming from uh, a kind of a proper background, musical training, making compositions, then they would hand them off to someone else who would have to then do the work of programming them into a sound driver of some kind. Um, yeah, Sakamoto is interesting because his career progression is the opposite to Yama. He's actually coming to an orchestral sound, like Tactics, hang in there, we're getting to it. <laughs> um, and he's coming to it from this programming background, unlike Sugiyama, he's working in the reverse, right? Um, so Sakamoto has skills that are very much in demand and very hard to get. He can actually create sounds great music and then program it directly and he has this early success creating a driver that he calls Terpsichorean named after the Greek god of music and dance uh, excuse me Greek muse of music and dance and um, the way that he has described this in an interview is you know you imagine that you've got an operating system right? um, but no software to run on it like you have something 
that's up and running and will let you, it's an environment in which you can create a game, but how do you then create music? Like, how are you even writing to those registers? Well, he creates the sound driver that lets him do that, and that driver is then adopted by their game studios and so forth. So uh, very early on having a, a major impact on the way that even his, his um, colleagues in other game studios can create music. So um, again, his first soundtrack uh, is, is a co-composed in 1988. It's uh, only two years before he goes out on his own as a solo composer. He writes um, three tracks for the Game Boy game Bubble Ghost. Why do I feel like I've heard about this before? Yeah, that seems I love Bubble Ghost. Right. Um, so um, he, he creates the music for Bubble Ghost, and um, it's incredibly mature and complex for a Game Boy game. In fact... Um, well, for a game called Bubble Ghost, I expect it to be mature. Yeah, that adult themes. Fell apart on me. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, uh, we should hear just a little bit of this, particularly if you um, go back and listen to the Final Fantasy Legend 2 uh, episode, you're going to hear some music that is a little less complex than this. Um, and again, you have to remember, two years as a professional composer, solo, his first solo effort, and um, here's the um, original soundtrack to Bubble Ghost. We're going to hear just hear the, the main background music here. Very menacing game, apparently. What just happened? There goes. That was there. <laughs> so yeah, I like it. You say this; it has this very menacing. It's kind of a, it's kind of a gimme, a uh, uh, gotcha, rather, right? It's yeah. like you know, it's a, a, a horror, and not so much, right. um, because in fact, if you can. Like, there's your bubble ghost. Um, <laughs> not really something to hide from. Uh, no need to pull up the sheets. Did either of you ever play the Space Quest games on the PC? Yes. They, they do a similar thing when you die. It's the death dirge. Dun, dun, da, dun, oh, yeah. Dun, yeah. Da, dun, 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 dun. Right, yeah. Um, so, um, as you can hear there, that's um, <coughs> not... Um, Orchestral, and it's not um, full it of pomp happy, or, or grandeur, right? And I think it's 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 sort of worth pointing that out because um, Sakamoto's background is actually in techno and pop, and that's his chief influence, right? He's talked many times about Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is a major major touchstone for many video game composers. Um, he's also a big Genesis fan. Um, Pre-Phil Collins, I like he points this out. <laughs> Pre-Phil Collins really likes Genesis, so again, you have this prog influence. But So he's coming to um, what are eventually uh, compositions that we, we tend to associate more with an orchestra uh, or uh, an orchestral hall than um, with like a rock show. But um, I think it's, it's nice to hear Bubble Ghost because, again, you have this progression of moving toward the orchestra. So um, you can sort of trace this in individual games, right? You can listen to King Breeder or Gauntlet, especially. Um, he does the music for Super Back to the Future 2. Um, and he's flirting with an orchestral style in all these cases, um, not least because as sound hardware improves, he has more channels to work with, and um, the synthesizer sounds are getting a little better at approximating real instruments. And so um, this brings us more or less up to speed, right? At the moment, uh, we come to 1997 and Final Fantasy Tactics. And so, as I've mentioned, um, Sakamoto takes the lead role, 
and he's responsible for most of, of this very cinematic soundtrack. Um, he takes on the battle themes, he takes on the character themes. And um, having already worked with pretty sophisticated hardware on the Super Famicom, you find with the PlayStation um, what must have seemed like limitless possibility. Uh, the memory um, that you have to work with is much expanded. And um, I mean, just looking at the sound hardware itself, um, trying to find a note here. Note to self. Where have I found my note? While he skims through his notes, yeah. I saw that Tactics Ogre was mentioned. We should try that one, since you like tactical RPGs so much. Thank you. And I've never played it. Thank you so much for that mention. <laughs> have and you ever played Tactics I Ogre? I have not. You can stop me when you find what you're looking for. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So, um, speaking of Tactics Ogre, here's some information on the PlayStation 1 sound chip. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, the PS1 offers... Um, and, and a lot of this is, frankly, this is, again, this is for beyond my ken, but um, what, what I can tell you that I think is somewhat meaningful is that the PlayStation 1 offers 16-bit pulse code modulation with 24 channels, and that's the important part, 24, so... Which is a bit higher than the 4 we had last month. Exactly, so uh, moving from 4 on the Game Boy up to 24 is, um, again... Just imagine how fancy Bubble Ghost could have been. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so... And on top of that, you also have a, a, a much improved um, sampling rate. So you can have, you can actually sample a real instrument and play that back. And uh, all that means that you're getting sound that is much closer to the real thing, um, to employing an orchestra. Would you uh, argue that it's even better than the real thing? Well, I think uh, I'm glad you, you mentioned it because we're going to hear some selections in a moment. And... Um, Let's just say that taste is subjective, <laughs> and you will be the judge. Um, uh, I think the soundtrack in general is is incredibly lush, and uh, more often than not, it works. I do think occasionally it dips into um, something I can only describe as like an uncanny valley for sound. Um, you Interesting. Can, you can hear what the composer is going for, but it doesn't quite get there, and you're left with that feeling of like uncomfortable um, yeah um, you know just some feeling that that something profane is happening you don't you can't explain it wow um, yeah, so, so you had bad, some experiences yeah. listening to this soundtrack you went through some emotion yeah yeah you're left feeling like someone has has, has pulled the rug out from under me and I can't I'm disoriented <laughs> what is happening to me it's not quite that bad but um, but it is worth zeroing in on one moment in particular where I think you'll probably hear that. You're going to hear the syntheticness um, of some of the orchestration here. So um, so we've talked a lot. I think it's probably good to let the music speak for itself now. Um, and I pulled out a few things that I think are characteristic of Sakamoto's work on the soundtrack. And um, so let's hear a few Sakamoto compositions and then we can contrast those with Matsuo. Um, excuse me, um, Iwata. And you can um, here maybe some of the difference there, right? So without further ado, this is the hero's theme, and this creates a motif for the soundtrack. Um, you hear this selection repeated in other pieces, right? Um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment after you've had a chance to hear it. And I'm scrolling and I'm scrolling and here it is. This is again <laughs> the hero's theme.
Okay, so Hero's Theme. What's interesting is, to me, I could see that being like the ending theme of a lot of the games we play. Like, as the final credits roll, and you flash back, maybe a melancholy ending, right? Am I alone in this, Russ? Am I just all by myself? I enjoyed it. It sounded, again, having no musical knowledge or experience <laughs> at all, this is it sounded very Chrono Cross to me. Okay. I, I was trying to think of what it was reminding me of, and that might be it. Which Chrono Cross is the first game that I ever played where I really noticed the music. Oh. Well, that would make sense, right? That's Mitsuda, yeah? So that's and a, we will get to Chrono Cross eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. We've done Chrono Trigger, so any right. day now. Yeah. So I'm glad that you you pulled out the melancholy there, right? and um, I think if you are familiar with the story, or um, there's ample reason for that, yeah. right? Um, and so this is a it theme. is not a bubble ghost happy go lucky kind of story. No, no, and I and and to have that to be so prominent in the hero's theme of all places is is not an accident, right? And the fact that this um, this selection recurs in other. Um, selections um, clearly meant to locate you, hero, in the heart of whatever action is taking place at that time, and um, and in fact that's often very difficult um, and upsetting um, because the the story is one of, of betrayal and um, I mean you talked about the story right so I don't yeah. need to go into that um, but you have this beautiful um, wistful duet um, between a harp and then. Um, another plucked instrument, uh, maybe a bass harp, um, where one is carrying the main melody, the other is kind of doing a contrasting melody underneath that. It's drenched in reverb, and I think that in particular gives it that, that sadness. Um, so that's the hero's theme, and, and that's a pretty um, simple composition, not to say that it's not affecting, but it's certainly in terms of its structural complexity, you've got two voices that are sounding there, right? So if we contrast that with Ovelia's theme, then we hear something that um, begins to show off a little more of the PlayStation's um, hardware and its sound capabilities. So this is Ovelia's theme by Hitoshi Sakamoto. And I should probably unmute that. Only if you want us to hear it. Something very important here, something different. 
music is the same, but not. The tempo has slowed ever so slightly. It's become a little more lugubrious. Again, not an accident when you're writing scores to communicate something about a character or that character's ultimate fate. holding you in suspense, creating some tension. And so here we have Ovalia's theme and what you're hearing. In addition to that, that incredible repetition, so you, you know the track is going to loop, and then the track loops, and you think that's video game music for you. It has changed in a way that you almost you might miss, uh, but it clearly has a different emotional register. It's very sad. Um, this is a track that, that begins with um, great optimism, right? It's, it's kind of, there's a, a nice quick tempo to it it's very cheerful um, and by the time it's over you know you're you're kind of wiping a tear from the corner of your eye um, and again you've covered the story so I don't need to tell you um, and maybe if this is a spoiler warning right so I just won't say anything <laughs> at all but um, suffice to say there's foreshadowing in some of this music and so what we have here again is uh, not only um, do we have tracks that are just more structurally complex and rich in terms of their sound. The sound is a little more convincing, um, but we have a shift in, in what video game music is for, right? Um, it's not just background music, it's not something to lure you to put a quarter in a machine, now it's actually, it's story. It's part of the story, yeah. Right, it's, it's cinema, it's, this is moving much, much closer to a long tradition of music and film, right? Um, so uh, those are, are two of the character themes. Um, I think it would be really silly to talk about Final Fantasy Tactics and not listen to some of the panel music. Um, after all, what are those tactics for? It's yes. not a dating simulator, although some of us might... Some of us would prefer that. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so let's listen to one of the, um, uh, the pieces of martial music. Um, this is Anti-Pyretic. Especially is that it clearly has passages. It's it's not a sweep, obviously, but there's a lot of dynamic richness here too, right? It isn't just sort of let's hit the player over the head with this loud and urgent sound for three minutes and then loop it. Um, so there's there's a practical reason to move into a section like this, which is a little calmer, right? Um, which is these battles might end up taking quite a while. They, they do. They <laughs> so, take a little while. 
you don't want to strain the ear. Time for you to sit and enjoy them. Yeah. But, you know, I think as you pointed out so astutely, um, <coughs> does this battle end in victory or does it end in the game over? Um, and depending on what's happening in the story, it may be necessary to communicate something about um, a, a less than optimal fate. And so... Um, what you have here is you begin with a symbol crash, and that will wake you up if nothing else will, right? Um, you have chimes, melody is carried by a horn section, um, and there's just a richness and a depth to the strings here. They are clearly layered. You have multiple channels together playing the same sound, um, or the same voice, rather, to create that timbral texture of a, of a string section. And so what you have here is something that is um, like an orchestra, right? Um, this is prefiguring. Uh, where Sakamoto is going to be in not too many years' time. He's actually going to be directing an orchestra. Um, and here he's beginning to develop that uh, voice, the voice of a, a composer. Um, so that's antiparetic. Um, so I, I sort of mentioned, um, maybe not so generously a moment ago, <laughs> that occasionally the sound does sort of veer into pure synthesis. Um, it just it, To me, it doesn't sound convincing. And um, whether that bothers you or not just has a lot to do with, I think, your own, uh, your own history of the game and um, your tastes with respect to VGM. I want to be clear, this is, um, I'm going to pick on Battle on the Bridge a little bit, just a little bit. And I'm not saying anything about the nature of the composition itself, um, but the limitations <coughs> of the hardware that Sakamoto is working with or the, the synthesizer that's being played here. And so um, let me shut my app and uh, play you Battle on the Bridge, and maybe you can hear what I'm getting at. out just to say that um, as Sakamoto himself has, has allowed in interviews, he feels like um, most of his career was always struggling against the limitations of, of the hardware he was working with in order to produce something um, beautiful or memorable or something that enriched the player's experience of the game. And I think he has unquestionably done that with Final Fantasy Tactics. And yet I do think there with that uh, frenetic decrescendo type section you hear some of the limitations. There's something about that particular string sound that just says, I'm not a real string section. <laughs> um, it, it draws attention to itself, and it doesn't, to me, it doesn't quite have the effect that it would have um, if this were re-recorded. And so, um, again, that's going to be a matter of taste. I think there are people that, um, just as, as there's kind of a... Um, uh, a fondness now uh, for low poly graphics, right? Those are coming back into mm -hmm. vogue. Um, 
there are un undeniably people are going to feel nostalgic about this particular kind of sound, and I think you'll begin to hear it. Um, people are going to deliberately try to invoke this era by um, playing with um, less than optimal technologies, and yet um, I hear this and think, God, I would love to hear real strings playing that. <laughs> um, so um, just worth pointing out that even though there, there's more channels to work with here, we're still uh, working with a limited sound. And it might also be worth mentioning here as a side note that this is about the moment when um, game audio begins to move toward um, fully orchestrated sound or playing back licensed music because, of course, the PlayStation 1 is CD-based. There is storage for um, uncompressed music files, um, large audio files, and so this is also the advent of Redbook audio, and so you start to have the situation where you can take a PlayStation game, and you can pop it in a CD player, and you can actually just listen back to the tracks, right, because they've mm -hmm. just added them straight to the CD, mm -hmm. they're not hidden in program data at all, and I don't know if that's the case with Final Fantasy Tactics, it is the case with Symphony of the Night listen to Symphony of the Night on your CD player because it's Red Book Audio. So I mention that just because Symphony of the Night, to me, sounds a lot like this. They have a similar kind of sound. Um, um, but the difference appears to be, and again, uh, maybe you should try this at home. If you've got a copy of Final Fantasy Tactics, put it in your CD player. Don't play the first track because <laughs> you might blow it up, but um, see if you have other audio tracks you can listen to because um, I don't know if these are instructions that are being played out by the PlayStation's hardware if they are pre-recorded. Um, but they do sound very similar. Um, I mentioned this impossible thing. Uh, both of these gentlemen were just agog at me uh, when we started out because I said that in doing a little bit of research for this episode, um, I found a YouTube comment that was actually instructive. Yeah. It was humane. Uh, nobody was insulted. <laughs> it wasn't fact, calling me fat, which is, I think, what most YouTube... Like, I don't own a mirror, yeah, but I think most YouTubers want to communicate. It is, yeah. It, this really ought to be... Um, put under glass in a museum somewhere and uh, should be described. <laughs> it's a kind of an amazing thing. So um, there's a track on this soundtrack called, um, and I shit you not, Wink, it's called Bloody Excrement. Classy. Yeah. Right. So Bloody Excrement. And, Russ had that once. Um, <laughs> haven't, we've all been there. Um, depending on what we're having for lunch, we might be there again. So, um, <coughs> yeah, no, no chimichangas. Um, where am I going? Bloody excrement. <laughs> so, there's there's a sentence I don't know has been uttered before. Where am I going? Yeah. Bloody excrement. So, you can imagine I'm looking over the track list for this. Um, I'm listening to all the stuff. Here comes this track, and I'm doing a double take, and I'm thinking, without having played the game, like what is happening in this moment? Right? <laughs> like, is this a mini game? Um, if <laughs> someone come down with a, a terrible piece of dysentery that like upsets, you know. That changes the course of the war. <laughs> um, don't really know. So this is interesting. Uh, I mentioned this specifically to point out the way that, again, the music here is doing more than just sort of occupying your ears while you make decisions on behalf of your units, right? This is communicating something about story. And so here's the comment. I'm just going to read this from YouTuber Johnny Rocket Fist. Thank you for we your service. We salute you. So... The title of this song is perfect, he says. And this comes after many, many comments which people are like, sounds like a metal band, LOL. Not Johnny Rockyfist. <laughs> Mr. Rockyfist is like, excuse me, draws himself up, and he says... Mr. Rockyfist was his father. He likes to be called by Johnny. Yeah, all right. J-Man. <laughs> so 
The title of the song is perfect. There is a mission the song plays when Ramza and the knights hunt down some thieves that have been running for days. Running for long periods of time plus dehydration equals bloody excrement. And I looked this up, and this is this is true. If you're dehydrated, <laughs> the shit that you pass is going to be dried. It's going to be hard. It's probably going to tear you up. Um, he goes on to add, They had been running like dogs for days, trying to get away, and finally had to make a last stand. Not being able to find the time to change clothes or clean up, they probably fought soiled and bloody. Also explains why some cadets could take down war veterans. So, this is kind of amazing to me. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a very nuanced discussion of excrement. It, it tells yeah. you something about the nature of the conflict that, that you've just um, played through in the story or that you've experienced. And um, unless you happen to own a copy of the soundtrack, I can't imagine that you would put that together, right? This is um, something that the, the composer clearly understood about that moment. Um, I don't think there's any way to communicate that through song necessarily, but through the description you get something that's very similar to the item descriptions that you have in Demons or Dark Souls or Bloodborne, where the story comes together through the environment and through the little bit of clues that you can sort of piece together from the artifacts in this world. There isn't anyone alive anymore to say, sit down, let me tell you what's happened to our city, stay a while in this. Yeah, um, no, right, the world has gone to hell. So if you want to try and do your detective work in between um, fighting off werewolves and um, and giant space snakes and things, um, you know, that's up to you, Sherlock. So um, just kind of an amazing moment here for 1997 to have something like that. So I've uh, jabbered a lot about Sakamoto. Um, yes, he had a co-composer in the soundtrack, um, and a wonderful one. Um, I want to be sure not to do a disservice to... Um, um, Masaharu Awata, because um, not only did he create um, something like, I believe it's 24 tracks for this game, um, many of them are, are great. Um, some of them are clearly just um, are mood pieces, they're just meant to establish kind of feeling. Um, Unfortunately, I think this is the last track we're going to have time for. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, uh, let's get right to it. So, um, this is a, a fantastic selection. Um, it plays when you first enter a city. City's name escaping me. Did I note that? I did not. You'll have to rely on um, the experience. Yeah, I'm here. great with names. It's gonna so it's gonna work great. The name of the song is Fur. And fur, thank you for being here, Steve. I appreciate it. Oh yeah. <laughs> fur, meat, and bones store. And this is by Iwata. <laughs> the soundtrack for the fur store, which is where you go to sell animal or monster components, which is a part of the game I never really got that into. But I think it also is part of the reason for the simplicity. It's a shop scene. Yeah. And it's a shop scene you're going to see 1,500 times. Yeah, and so I'll just also very quickly play this is a short. This is the pub. Also by Masahiro Auto. This one I know well. Because you hear this constantly. 
so it sounds like he got the, the more pedestrian tracks that you encounter more often. Yeah, I think, um, so I really like this piece of music. Um, I think I'm going to be tapping my toe to this for days. <laughs> um, it's, it's relatively straight ahead, um, and it's got uh, a fairly um, simple or simplistic melody. Again, that's not to, to create a judgment on it, just to say that in comparison to some of the other tracks we've heard that you hear on the soundtrack, there's less going on. Um, um, there's less note complexity. There are less voices, right? Um, in fact, in the pub uh, selection, we have... Um, it's, it's interesting. This is both true of Fur, Meat, and Bone Store and Pub. There's more going on than you might hear on a first listen. In fact, um, there are six voices present in Fur, Meat, and Bone Store. You have um, uh, a gong <laughs> who opens the song, right? And then you've got a bed uh, that consists of an eight-note um, celeste. It sounds like a celeste to me. So you have eight notes on a celeste. The cello is kind of droning away in the background. And then you've got um, some strings that are doing these little stabs also in the background. And then on top of all of that, you have a melody that comes in on a woodwind, um, maybe an oboe. Your ears might be sharper than mine. Um, and it kind of takes places in, in this duet, right? They kind of trade voices, the oboe, and then what is clearly a bassoon playing the melody. Um, and so the pub is, is not quite that busy, but also has a lot going on. And yet your, your experience of it is a rather direct melody, is something that's very catchy and hummable without exhausting the ear. Um, like you say, it's something you're going to hear many, many times, um, and it's hopefully a welcome repetition rather than one where you're you know, reaching and turning down your beta listening to podcasts. Um, um, yeah, that was me at Spelunky. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to listen to the music in Spelunky a minute longer than I have to. Um, so you get these, these tracks, and the pub in particular, that's such a warm, round, unhurried sound. It's really pretty. And so, um, and so those are the kinds of contributions he's making, right? So necessary, important, um, and yet still... Um, probably going to be overshadowed to some extent by um, yeah, the, 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 um, the more complex or gripping. Yes, the, the more heroic and driving tunes. Yeah. So um, I would I have to give some shout outs to uh, the, the many who've come before me here um, in putting together um, these notes. I relied heavily on a composer uh, biography by Chris Greening of EGMO, which is excellent. Um, and that links out to a number of other interviews that Sakamoto has given with BGM enthusiasts over the years. Um, some of those links are broken, thank God for the Wayback Machine, just stick that into um, archive.org and you can recover most of these. Um, there's a terrific interview at gaming.moe that Heidi Kemp's conducted. Um, and um, there are podcasts, a number of podcasts that have really zeroed in on Sakamoto. And uh, the one that I'd recommend you check out, if you're interested in hearing more across his gameography, is a podcast called Super Mercato Brothers, M-E-R-C-A-T-O. Um, maybe you can put these in the sure. show notes. Um, so this is where the uh, brother composers, Carl and Will Brueggemann, um, they talk at length about Sakamoto. And unlike me, they have musical training, um, <laughs> and they know how to describe what they're hearing in terms of music theory. So if you have an interest in understanding the kinds of chord selections that Sakamoto is making, uh, the full range of his influences, in particular the, the um, linkage to um, Alan Silvestri's music and the kind of influence there, um, they have a lot more information for you than I can provide, so I recommend you check that out.
Well, thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, my pleasure. And I guess now it's time to move on to Final Thoughts. Final Thoughts. Story. A plus. Gameplay. F. Uh, I think from the very beginning of this review, my opinion has been fairly clear. Uh, I don't. I give it an A. I don't know if I'd give it an A plus because it is longer and slower than some of the other games that we've played. Although I often find that to be the charm of it. it modern gaming, it can be a little bit of a hindrance to get through. But I'm still going to say it's an A. Like Russ said, it's a great story, uh, and I love the combat system. We've learned from this that for some reason, Fire Emblem is an exception. But Russ doesn't like tactical RPGs, so his opinion is not to be trusted. Yeah, well, so final thoughts. Um, actually, my thoughts are more like initial thoughts, because my intention for this episode was to do more than to come on and barge into this discussion, this wonderful discussion you've had with these experienced gentlemen. Um, I wanted to contribute to that in some way that had more to do uh, with the game than just its soundtrack, which... Um, to be honest with you, I've listened out of context. Oh my god. Um, but this crazy thing happened, right? When I booted up the game on my Vita, um, I got through the opening movie, and I got situated, and I was enjoying the story. I was in the chapel. Everything was unfolding. This is a very beautiful game, even now. Uh, I love diorama-type setups and games of all kinds, anyhow. So I'm, like, ready to go, and I just bounced off of this and um, I feel like that's maybe fair warning to anyone who's coming to this um, from a place where maybe inexperience with tactical RPGs that's me um, or experience with tactical RPGs that um, have some modern innovations um, particularly the ability to speed up battles um, that's something that I, I really struggled with and also I think this is kind of where I wonder if people are going to disagree with me here. Um, that's fair, right? This is the internet. We can have we can have disagreements uh, in a civil way. <laughs> um, I feel like the learning curve here is pretty dang steep. Um, and although there is this tutorial, it's very much a kind of put yourself through this outside of the game. Um, and you may want to take notes. And it goes on for quite a long time. And it's about as much fun as watching a PowerPoint. Um, so I feel like um, some people are just going to be um, quite good at throwing themselves in here and learning as they go. Um, but I would just say, um, really, this is me talking to future version of myself. Like the next time you come to this game, because I do feel like I've got to crack it. It's so beloved. This is a major, major hole in my gaming experience. Uh, note to self spend a lot of time on any of the very well-developed wikis that can really help you to get a foothold um, before just trying to th throw yourself into the game itself because the uh, tutorials are not as well integrated as I might have liked. And a score. Oh, I couldn't possibly. Uh, yeah, scoring the game, um, this is very much a uh, question mark out of 10 um, stars. Uh, glimmering in some number, some constellation that I can't yet glimpse. Uh, maybe in a future episode I can drop in here and tell you uh, what I think about it, some way that would be responsible and fair to all the 
uh, men and women involved in this creation. So do you know off the top there, off of your head, if they want to play this game, where do they get it? You don't know? Yeah, I mean, PSP or... There is a remake... Are you asking me for real, or are you... I can start again if it would help. So Russ, if they want to play Final Fantasy Tactics, where do you they go? You say it like that. So Russ, if they want to... I'm the actor. I'm the talent. I wish I could say he's just showing off because there's visitors, but this is what it's like. No, this is just me. I have 20 minutes of footage of us trying to get ready to film the first review where he's talking about everything but the review. So Russ, if they want to play Final <laughs> Fantasy Tactics, where can they get it? Well, you can get the original PS1 release. Also you, on a virtual store for the PS3. You can PS3 virtual uh, console. There is a PSP version called War of the Lions, which, which adds A remake, it something. adds a couple job yeah. classes. Uh, I don't know how much more it adds than just a jo couple job classes, but it's basic, It's more or less the same game. So, and those, um, are the, those are the versions that I know of. Me as well. Yeah. So... Um, I recommend going out and getting it and playing it if you like tactical RPGs. Let's say that. I recommend watching a YouTube video of all of the story because it is worth the, the story is worth experiencing. And the fact that as much as he could not play the game, the fact that he's still recommending you go out and go you know, look at the story. You know what I would like? I would like if it had the feature from what was it, the Persona Four fighting game, where you could where just... you can skip all the fighting. And you just watch the visual novel portion. Like, I would buy I did Final that. Fantasy Tactics the story. story mode. <laughs> like, just take out all of the unnecessary combat. Which in itself, in and of itself should be high praise. It is high praise, yeah. Because I, he hated the game, yeah. but he loved the story of the game. And when you're playing JRPGs, one of the main things, the reason it's... Apart from personal history, story and characters are the first thing we discuss for a reason. The story is one of the most important parts of a JRPG. It's one of the reasons I like the genre and wanted to get more into the genre by doing this series, because I like stories. I play video games for stories, and that's one of the things that JRPGs do best, is their stories. So, if you like tactical RPGs, even Russ will tell you this game has a great story. story. Mm -hmm. I love the combat. I also liked Shining Force. He hated Shining Force. I like Hyper Devotion Noir Goddess Blackheart. He won't play it. So oh, tell a lot of people that, but that's me. <laughs> it's a really good tech. Anyway, uh, so next time, Russ has picked the game that we are playing. Do you remember what it is? I do. Yes, I do remember Would what it is. Would you like to tell the folks We are playing... Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon, the RPG. Every single time. Yeah, I don't know why that's my favorite joke. I, um, I don't no. either. We are playing, we're playing Lunar 2 Eternal Blue for the Sega CD. All right. So we'll see you guys there. Home on the RNG is a presentation of Mad Centaur Productions. You can find Jeff on YouTube.com slash Centaur Productions or on Twitter at Jeff Centaur. You can find Russ on Twitter at RussMac25. Mike Hughes can be found on Twitter at MobilesWorking. Thank you for listening, and remember, it's dangerous to go alone. Take this podcast with you.
Thank you for being a, a friend. Traveling down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. And if you threw a party, invited everyone you knew, you would see. Every time we bring somebody in, every time.